I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. We've got it all in this podcast. I go for a walk around London with Leo Hollis. We start next to Temple Church where William the Marshall's buried, but we only did that because I love William the Marshall. But anyway, we start essentially at the edge of the limit of destruction of the Great Fire of London in 1666. And on this walking tour, we talk about the plague of 1665 that killed, I don't know, one in three Londoners? Totally insane. We talk about the Great Fire of London. And then we talk about the rebuilding, how London suddenly became the world's biggest port, the world's biggest city, one of the world's dominant economic and cultural centres. And essential, essential that was the rebuilding of London, the recasting of London in the shape and some of the architectural styles that we still recognise today. An early modern city rose up on the ashes of the medieval, sadly, because I like medieval architecture, and there's very little in London. Emily Yanniger is going to at me now and terrify me, but there's very little in London, let's just say that. This is a great walk, and we talk about, as we cross over Bond Street, which is now one of the poshest shopping streets in London. It used to be a river, and as you cross over Bond Street, you enter a huge estate that fell to an heiress, that heiress was called Mary Davis, and she had a terrible life. It was a curse, folks. It was a curse. Her father died in the plague. She inherited it, had an arranged marriage to some aristo, was then kidnapped, forced married to someone else. I mean, it's unbelievable. This story is quite extraordinary. So this is us walking the mean streets of London, talking about the birth of London, an heiress, a kidnap, and a lot more besides. If you want to go and watch some documentaries, we've got a lot of documentaries about London. Let me tell you, during lockdown, we had to make a lot of documentaries about London. And I mentioned Eleanor Yanniger earlier. Her series of medieval histories are storming the top charts of historyhit.tv. The only charts that matter in this world. And you can go to historyhit.tv. You can watch all that wonderful London history over there. All you do is sign up, very small subscription, and you join the club. It's going to be awesome to have you. HistoryHit.tv. In the meantime, here is Leo Hollis taking me on a big walk through central and west London. Enjoy. So Leo has brought me to this very quiet, wonderful area of London. It's where the barristers are usually very busy working away. It is the temple. I'm standing now beside Temple Church. It's famous circular shape, reminding us that it was originally a Knights Templar church. William the Marshall buried in there, but let's not worry about that. This podcast is about the 17th century, and Leo and I get off on our walking tour. Okay, so why are we down this little alleyway? Why does our great tour start here? So we're starting here in the temple. The temple sits halfway between the city, so the financial capital, and Westminster, 
which was the royal and political centre of the ah. city. And in the middle were this kind of, this, this line of lawyers. <laughs> Making money as the letters go both ways. Absolutely. It's also here where all the banking was started. But if we think about what was happening here just before the Civil War, one of the main characters of our story was Hugh Audley, who was a lawyer who lived his whole life within these alleys. He was one of the ex most extraordinary Londoners, in some ways one of the first capitalists. So if you imagine a character like Thomas Cromwell or John Gresham, here was a man who was a commoner but became one of the most influential people as a financier, as a money lender, and also as a property speculator. And it was here while he was a lawyer that he bought the land that would later become the manor of Ebury and Neat House. This guy, Audley, there's always been money men who emerge and are able to sit between the kind of merchants and the aristos. But what is it about the timing of that generation? Why were they able to leave a sort of stamp on this city that would, well, last till this day? I think. At the broadest, this was a time of global expansion, that you see trade routes going all across the world. London specifically had started to transform during the Elizabethan period, and there had been a concerted effort to make London a trading centre rather than becoming dependent on Antwerp or Amsterdam. So London, with the formation of things like the Royal Exchange, became the heart of a trading empire. And so Audley takes advantage of that. One of his early ventures was investing in trips, voyages across the seas for goods, and he made fabulous profits out of it. And so this was happening just as the 17th century was changing. The city was becoming increasingly more powerful and seeing itself in opposition to the old legitimate powers of Westminster and the Crown. So somebody had to sit between those two points of power. Well, law was the thing that controlled everything in many ways, and this was true of international trade as well as property. So London is on its way to becoming the biggest port in the world, financial centre, England's a trading power. But you've also got some politics going on. You've got wars against the Dutch, kings being restored. It's all happening. Plague. Well, exactly. I mean, as London is emerging as a modern sort of city, it's also completely on its knees. So in the 1660s, you've had nearly 20 years of civil war and the interregnum. And then you have Charles II coming back. You have plague in 1665. And then you have the Great Fire, which totally devastates the whole landscape of the city. So the fire itself, which started in September 1666, came all the way up to the edge of the temple, just where Chancery Lane is there. It destroyed everything and it transformed everything because the rebuilding of the city really established London as the first modern city. Wow, so if we'd been standing here in late 1666 it would have just been a barren wasteland just from almost just the end of that that block there. Exactly, if you were here on September the 6th 1666 you would have had seen a fight between the future James II and the lawyers because as the fire was coming over the wall of the temple the lawyers refused James to come in and they dealt with the fire themselves, but it literally burnt the outer edge of the temple. They had his number. They had James Duke of York's <laughs> number years before the rest of us realised what a ne'er-do-well he was. Okay, so you've got old London completely destroyed. What proportion of the city killed in the plague the year before? There was about one in three people who were killed in the city. I mean, a lot of the rich and the powerful left leaving the majority of the citizens pretty much on their own. 
Um, there was very little help. There was probably two or three doctors that were left to tend hundreds of thousands of people. And by the end, they estimate it's probably over 100,000 people were killed. You've got plague, devastating effects of the plague. Fires incinerated most of the city. It doesn't feel like the ideal setting to build one of the world's great cities. No, and that's exactly, it's that kind of dilemma and that kind of catastrophe that did allow the city to be reborn because it wasn't reborn just in terms of its fabric. It's not just the buildings that matter. It's what was needed to be transformed in order to allow that rebuilding to occur. And that questioned power, it questioned politics, finance, the way things were made and who made them. And these lawyers who had to make sure the boundary disputes were all settled. Well, absolutely. I mean, every single house needed to be remeasured and set out. And at this time, you also see the development of a new scale of private property, as well as things like mortgages and leaseholds. So the rebuilding reinvented the idea of what property was. So why, when we're talking about a city that's been incinerated there, does all the attention shift west to this dazzling new wealthy suburb of London in the west? I think you get two things. Firstly, you get a third of the population that never wanted to go back. So they were looking for new places to live. I think secondly, you get this emerging bourgeois class. So the merchant class and the professional classes that are looking for new ways of living. So new types of housing. And once the old city had been rebuilt, you have a new industry, a whole new construction industry that wanted to continue growing the city. And so they start moving westwards and up to the north and to the south, building brand new types of terraces, types of squares, where this new class would be able to express themselves and live in new ways. Okay, so we got lots of builders, we got lots of money, men who want to lend money, big opportunities. Where are you taking me next? Okay, we're going to head north towards Lincoln's Infield, and there we're going to start the story of Mary Davies as well. Let's go. So what's the significance of this square that we're in now? So we're in Lincoln's Infield, which is in some ways the very first square that was built in London. It was built in the 1630s. It came out of a private property scheme by a man called William Newton. He had hoped to build a square like the ones that you would find in sort of France or in Italy, but he had to build around this large field. So you get this expanded space, but with a series of houses around it. And this really is in some ways ground zero for the redevelopment of London. And so what is it about the 17th century? Is it just fashion, taste, powerful people moving in, building techniques? Why suddenly do you get the construction of these squares? I think first you get demand. You get a, a, a new class of people who want to live outside the old city. You then get speculators, businessmen and investors and builders who are willing to put up money up front. And then finally you get the land itself. So this land would have been owned by the crown or by an aristocrat who would then want to make profit out of it. And the way that they thought of doing it is firstly putting their own house as part of the sort of square. And then you sort of see the major, most elegant sort of Parisian hotel. And then surrounding it, you sort of see a escalation of terraces. And so this is a completely different way of thinking about the way that people lived, because they're living next door to each other. And this is to do with the way that the buildings were actually made themselves. So the aristocrat would make money by putting as many houses as possible along a street front. So the London Terrace House is narrow and tall and deep. And that's because the person who owned the land wanted as much ground rent as they could possibly get. So just to go back a stage though, late Tudors, Queen Elizabeth, 
this was countryside and you'd have just seen the sort of smelly smudge of London over in that direction. Yes, pretty much. By about sort of 1630, 1640, there had been a growth of the city and it's been pretty informal. And so around this area in what was called St. Giles by the Field, you start to get kind of slum areas, but also the odd house, the odd sort of street, but it's disorganized and it's on its knees by the 1660s. And this was really the crucible for the plague in 1665. This was ground zero for London development, but also the plague. Yeah, around here was all the kind of informal housing that really allowed the plague to absolutely rip through the neighborhood. Are there any buildings left now from that original square along the edge? It's said that this house over here, which was designed by Inigo Jones. So Inigo oh, yeah. Jones is an essential name in the sort of development of London in the 17th century. He was first off a designer of masks for James I. He then went to... As in not face coverings, but as in <laughs> dramatic opportunities. That's right, yeah, yeah. so, so, so uh, sort of court plays, yeah, yeah. which were incredibly expensive and incredibly ornate. He then went off to Italy and it blew his mind. He saw things and architecture that he was desperate to bring back to London. So the villas of Palladio that he saw in the Veneto and also places like the square at Leghorn or Livorno. And he came back to London in the 1610s and started transforming the odd piece. So you've got Queen's House down in Greenwich, you've got the Banqueting Hall down in Whitehall. And this house here is said to be one of the very first terraced houses in London. Tell me about Mary David. Okay, so Audley dies in 1662, the person that we saw over by the temple. His lands, his London estate, is handed to his scrivener, so somebody who works in his office called Alexander Davies, who moves into this square in 1665. He has a daughter called Mary, and she grows up for the first four or five months of her life here, and then they finally move to a house that Alexander is building down in Westminster. Suddenly, he dies in July 1665 of the plague. And she becomes the heiress of the estate at five months old. Right. You might say that's an amazing legacy, or you might say it's a bit of a curse. Well, inheritance is both a curse and a blessing. And what we'll see as we sort of follow Mary Davis's life along is this plot of land determines her life. It is the compass for which every decision that is made for her and about her and by her becomes central. The Drury Lane we're on now is the Theatre Street of London. Exactly. This is also one of the epicentres of the plague in 1665. Oh, less cheerily. Yeah, less cheerily. But if you imagine this was in some ways an informal settlement, there were houses higgledy-biggledy all the way up. And it was here that really the disease caught hold and was like a fire throughout the whole neighbourhoods. And the conditions were horrific. There's an extraordinary account on this street of a family that was locked up. So a guard was put on their door, but the local people just rushed the guards and got a baby out of the house and took it to another neighbourhood. Any house that was caught with the plague on it was closed up. A nurse and a guard were put inside and essentially the family had to wait until everyone had died a cross was put on the door as well and Lord have mercy on our souls and this happened all the way through 1665 and spread from here into the city and during that summer 
the bills of mortality just grew from tens to hundreds a week. By the summer, it was almost like a ghost town. So what do we think the population of London was after the fire and after the plague, as it was beginning its period of regrowth? Well, we know that at the beginning of the century, it was about 250,000 people. By the end of the 17th century, it was about half a million. So it had doubled in size. It was now massive compared to any other city in the world, even Tokyo, which was at that time the largest city in the world. But there's one thing that I do want to show you on this before we head off, which is this lovely little detail. Oh, yeah. It's called a Mercer's Maid. Okay. And it's the sign of the Mercer's Company, so one of the 12 great guilds of the city. And it shows that this was owned by the Mercer's Company and they still own it and they still look after it. And if you go around the city and you find the Mercer's Maid, it means that that property is owned by one of the guilds. Still to this day. You're listening to Dan Snow's History. I've got Leo Hollis telling me about the explosion of London in the 17th century. More after this. Romans, gods, Spartans, the wars of Alexander the Great's successors in incredible, entirely necessary detail. The Ancients podcast, it's kind of like Dan's show, except it's just ancient history. We've got the leading experts. We've got the big topics, from ancient Vietnam to the fall of Rome. Subscribe to the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Okay, yeah. we're in Covent Garden, right? This is the beating heart of London's after-hours activities in the 18th century. Yeah, so this is the beautiful Covent Garden, built exactly the same time as Lincoln's Inn, but this was the project of the Duke of Bedford and Inigo Jones. Inigo Jones, as I said, had visited Italy, and he came back and he brought almost an exact design of the piazza in uh, Livorno. And this is what he tried to build here. It was going to be a housing project, but very quickly, because it bumped into the Civil War, it fell apart. 
and as a result they had to change it into what became the food market of the city. So that's how Covent Garden became the vegetable and fruit market of the city. So you never got grand people living in these houses around the edge? Not as grand as they should have been. That was in some ways the problem. Every developer's Every developer's worst. nightmare. Yeah. And so very quickly, by the time you get into the 18th century, this was the sort of centre of licentiousness and, Red light and, and pleasure. Yeah. But you also get this gorgeous church, which was the very first Anglican church to be built in Britain. The very first church after the Reformation. Really? Yeah. So it was built by Inigo Jones. And the Duke of Bedford, who didn't care much for religion, sort of said, just build me a barn. And Inigo Jones said, I'll build you the best barn England has ever seen. And he spent a fortune building this sort of Tuscan order. Wow. Very cool. Right, let's keep going west. Okay. <laughs> so some of these buildings look pretty old here, don't they? Yeah, very much. We're now entering Chinatown. This was a scheme that was created in the 1670s, 1680s by a speculator called Nicholas Barbon, who is one of the most fascinating characters in London's history. This was all, in some ways, fields, but he bought the lease to the land and he started developing these houses. Now, Barbon was a fascinating character. He was baptised, if Jesus had not died for thee, thou would be damned Barbon. I know, it's one of my favourite names in British history. He was the uh, son of, praise God, Barbon, who was a Baptist preacher. But Barbon, he worked in London during the plague. He then started rebuilding the city after the Great Fire. And this kind of scheme was how the city was rebuilt and how it expanded into the 18th century. So you get these narrow houses built high and these were the kind of housing that was absolutely perfect for the new merchant classes. So this is another one of your squares that was built in this period, is it? This is Golden Square which came about in the sort of second half of the 17th century but we're here really because of an event that happened in the beginning of the next century and we go back to the story of Mary. Right, who we left as a five-month-old with a gigantic fortune. So she is this heiress and very quickly her mother decides that the best way for her future and the estate to be preserved is to put her daughter up onto the marriage market. So the very first time she starts negotiating with Lord Berkeley when Mary is 10, that deal falls through but two years later she does negotiate a deal with Sir Thomas Grosvenor and they marry when Mary is 12. What's the deal look like? I mean, is there money? Did the mum get money or how's that negotiation take place? Absolutely. There was a lump sum up front. There was paying off the family debt, so over £5,000. There was an annual income for Mary. There was money put aside for Mary's aunt, who was also her governess. And then there was planning for the future. So what would happen if there were daughters, whether there were sons? So the inheritance going on down the generations. So the Groveners get their hands on this gigantic estate to the west of London. Yeah, and it's still at this time, it's still a long way out from the development of the rest of the city. So the city is growing westwards, but it hasn't yet reached the boundaries of the estate. So Mary, as a 15-year-old, moves up to Chester to the Grosvenor family and there spends 15 years or so. She becomes a mother to five boys and a girl. Two of the sons die. And then, suddenly, in 1700, she becomes a widow. Sir Thomas Grosvenor dies, and this is when the drama completely changes. She goes on a European tour. 
she goes to Paris and then Rome with her confessor, so her chaplain. And potentially they go and visit James II or the exiled king in Paris and then they go down to Rome and go and visit the papacy there. However, when they're making their journey back, Mary falls ill. And by the time that she arrives at Paris, she is not well at all. And so they book into the Hotel Castile in the Rue Saint-Dominique on the left bank of Paris. And over the course of the week, there are these extraordinary events that occur, which the book kind of in some ways unpacks. But by the end of that week, she wakes up and finds a man in her bed who turns out to be the brother of her chaplain, a man called Edward Fenwick. Within hours, they're married. And so the news and the gossip of this marriage spreads throughout the English community in Paris. And within three weeks, Mary has escaped and has moved back to London. And she claims that the marriage never occurred and that there was no wedding, there was nothing of the sort. Edward Fenwick follows on and starts treating her land as his own. And there you get a crisis because this estate, this extraordinary fortune, might be lost to the Grosvenor family. So what are the family to do? And so in this period, Mary comes to Golden Square and she comes to visit her lawyer, Mr. Andrews. And she's meant to step out of her coach and go to the house and to stay here because they were worried that Fenwick was going to kidnap her, but she refuses. And instead, she leaves London, goes up to Chester, and never comes back to the city again. Those details are kind of known about what you explore so beautifully in the book is the impact on her because she may very likely have suffered sexual assault and she has a catastrophic breakdown almost immediately afterwards, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, it is a tragic story with Mary right at the heart of it, that she was somebody who did show signs of mental illness and that this was something that was potentially exploited by Fenwick in order to get her into that sort of situation. And so this question, whether she was mad or not, would be at the heart of the court case that took place in 1703, which is really the centre of the book. And it's lots of men fighting over her patrony, her inheritance. She's absent from that whole trial, so the person that it's all about doesn't get a voice in the trial. Well, that's what's so extraordinary. If Mary had been born a boy in 1665, there would be no story. The fact that she was a woman and the fact that at all stages of her life, her property was looked after by her mother, her husband, by a guardian, and then by her children, meant that in some ways this was a woman's burden during this period. The relationship between her body and her land are utterly intertwined. What's tragic is despite the fact that she was this heiress and she was in possession of this extraordinary fortune, she only ever signed one land contract. And that land contract, which is now in the Westminster archives, showed that there was one tiny period of her life when she was in control of what was hers. The rest of her life, she was always, in some ways, under somebody else's shadow. So I always feel when you cross Regent Street there, it feels like you're moving to a different part of London. Was that a boundary in the old days? Completely. I mean, where we were in Golden Square, that was sort of 1680s. We're now entering the 18th century. Right. So this is around sort of 1710s. We're here just at the south of Hanover Square, which is just 
over in that direction. This was the sort of entry point coming up from Piccadilly and with St George's Church right here. This was a revitalization, a new century of building as the city started to grow westwards. And all these people were sort of merchants, people taking advantage of the burgeoning industrial revolution, the trade going around the world. This is new money here, was it? This was both new money and old money. What was very interesting is that the development of the city was actually breaking up between Whigs and Tories. Ooh. So you had particular squares where the developer would have his mates and then just across the way there would be another one. So Cumberland Square over there, what's fascinating about that is it was deeply involved in the South Sea bubble. Ah. So that was the sort of financial speculation on a vast new scale. And it had an absolute physical impact upon the rebuilding of London. Okay, so let's plough on deeper into the 18th century, head this way. Yep, so we're just on the verge of the Grosvenor Estate. So we're gonna move westwards and on Bond Street, we move from this old estate into the Grosvenor Estate. So Mary's inheritance is suddenly on the edge of the city itself. I'm increasingly valuable. And so if you imagine by about sort of 1710, 1720, the city had come to this point here and there down Bond Street that exists today was the Tyburn River. Really? So this was the edge of the city? This was the edge of the city. It. And as we cross the street, we cross into Mary's inheritance. Okay, let's cross into her patch. There's Fenix shop there, that's rather good. Yes. There you go, Grosvenor Street, we're on the patch. This is now some of the most expensive real estate in the world, but it was all potential back then. That's what they were fighting over. They were fighting over the potential of this. Exactly. So if we go back to that wedding, or supposed wedding, between Mary and Fenwick, that ended in a court case in 1703 where they tried, both sides tried to prove whether a marriage had taken place in that hotel in Paris. If Fenwick won, he gained the whole estate. If Mary could prove that she wasn't married, then all the lands would return to the Grosvenor family. And so they deliberated over a course of 14 hours and in the end they decided that actually there had been a marriage and Fenwick won. However, nothing happened. There was an appeal two years later and finally the Grosvenor family regained their estate. And the thing that they did immediately after that was to ensure that Mary was declared as a lunatic. So she could no longer look after the property and she was no longer the property owner. And as a result, the estate was saved. It was 15 years later, as London started to grow westward, that they started to develop that original land. And Grosvenor Square, where we're standing right now, was the beginning of the development of the Grosvenor estate. And it would, over the centuries, reach all the way down to the Thames. But here, in 1720, they built this square, which at the time was the most exclusive address in London. So I'm so interested, we walked all the way from the east there, central old London, at the temple where the lawyers are, we come all the way out here, but the lawyers play a critical part in the development of this site as well. Law feels important in this story. Absolutely, it's not just the law. I mean, we look at London and so much of what we see is bricks and spaces and streets, but actually it's law, it's finance, as well as construction that transforms the city and that's really what that period from the Great Fire to here into the sort of 1720s that really made London 
modern. It's the invisible as well as the tangible development of the city. Because yeah, you can't invest in creating a palatial square here unless you can borrow money, get some insurance, and you know who owns the land. It's not gonna be taken off you. Exactly. England's story is the story of property law. It's what really distinguishes us from pretty much every other country. We were there incredibly early and Mary's life is absolutely dominated by the emerging rules of property ownership, of who can own, what is owned and what you can give to the future. Well thank you very much for taking me on the trip. If we want to walk to the edge of modern London now, what, it's another 20 miles that way? At least 20 miles, yes. The M25 is probably even further than that. That's for episode two. Right, <laughs> let's do it. I feel the hand of history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's a tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.